Thanks for joining us at the Vine Church. We are one church with two locations reaching around the world with our online service. We exist to connect the world to Jesus Christ. And you can partner with us in that by sharing this video or by clicking the Give link below. For now, prepare your hearts for incredible worship and an inspiring message. This is the day that you have made Whatever comes, I won't complain For all my hope is in your name And now your joy awaits my praise And I give thanks I give thanks to all you have done And I will sing of your mercy and your love Your love is unfailing Lord, I am grateful yeah. Every evening, every morning Let's sing when I was down When I was down You brought me out Set my feet on high ground So here I stand So here I stand You are my God Faithfulness My solid rock I give thanks I give thanks For all you have done And I will sing Of your mercy and your love Your love is unfailing Lord I Oh, uh -huh. 
going to sing a new song this morning. It's called Now I See. It's about what happens when we come face to face with Jesus. That things start to change. When we see him, we go from being blind to seeing. We go from death to life. So this morning as we sing it, I see you sing it with us. Born to the darkness. Born to the darkness, I was rejected and cut off from what I couldn't see. He's love for me. They said he's not who he seems. Don't get your hopes up for you. But I still when I saw his face. My heart burst to life. I saw the light in his eyes when he looked at me. My whole world's on fire, alive with the presence that burns inside of me. Now I know whose I am. Forever I stand on your truth. I believe. I Turn to daylight for you. Joy is the song that I sing. All of my days are filled with your praise. All of my days are filled with. Inside of me, now I know 
sing my heart burns my heart burns to light and I saw the light in his eyes when he looked at me my whole world's on fire alive in the presence that burns inside of me now I know I know whose I am forever I'll stand on your truth I believe cause I was blind but now I Well, how are you this morning? It's good to see you at church. It's good to be with you. For those of you I haven't had the privilege of meeting, my name is Andrew Irwin, and I get to be one of the pastors here at The Vine. And I'm really fired up that I get to be with you this morning as we launch a brand new message series called The Church, because I love the church. The church radically and completely changed my life forever for the better, which is why it breaks my heart when I hear from people who say things like, oh, yeah, we've got to go to the church Because in their mind, the church is just relegated to a building or a location or a place. It really really breaks my heart when I hear people talk about churches only just the the time that they show up once a week or, let's be real, a couple times a month on Sunday mornings to come and sing a few songs and listen to a person speak from a platform. Like The church is so much more than that, but it's really easy to reduce into just a place we go and that thing we do. And when we do that, what happens to church is it becomes a chore. And when church becomes a chore, it's really tough to get here on Sunday mornings, even when you have had an extra hour of sleep. It just makes it hard to get out of the house on time, to get through the ride here. It just, it's difficult. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, let me just show you with this video. Babe, can you hurry up? I can't figure out how to buckle this thing. We're going like three miles, who cares? All right, fine. doing? It's dry shampoo. Do you think I have time to shower? Why do you need that? Just wake up earlier. Oh, maybe if you'd help me with the kids, I okay. could bathe. I do everything in this house. Can I, can, Babe, can that, that seatbelt thing drives me crazy. It gives me a headache. Can you buckle up? Please? Okay, maybe if you would do your job, I wouldn't have to. Mom, Dylan's mad. Why? Why is he mad? Because he lost his Triceratops. Triceratops? Okay, Triceratops aren't even in the, not Bible. in the Bible. Okay, we learned exist. creation. Here, put some of this under your eyes. What Did you, you not get any sleep? I got plenty of sleep. I'm fine. What? Daddy stayed up playing poker. Okay, enough. Play with the Barbies. Can you please learn how to drive? Listen, do your makeup at the house. I don't have time. This is chocolate or poops. Baby, I'm trying to put my lipstick on. If you hey, could he's, put... lear- he's learning about David and Goliath. Just let him shoot, okay? I can shoot. Mom, Dylan wants to watch videos on Dad's phone. Oh, I'm sorry, sweetie. Tell Dylan that Daddy's texting and driving. And okay, can't listen, I'm navigating, all right? I'm on the GPS. Okay, maybe if you went to church more, you wouldn't have to look up where it is. 
That resonate with anybody about your drive here this morning? Listen, it, don't, don't elbow anybody, okay? That's not helpful for the ride home after service today. But I want you to hear this. Like if, if you had a hard time getting here this morning, I want you to know we're glad you persevered and made it. And I really hope that when you leave here today that you walk out of here knowing that church is just so much more than a chore. It, it really is. And I think one of the reasons we've reduced church to a chore is because we've made church about us. You see, we've taken the church and we've made it your church. And and let's just break down the distinction there because it's really important. The church is about Jesus and doing what he wants. Your church is about you and you getting what you want. And that's a big difference. But the difference can be really difficult to see. And so I just want to give you some examples of how you can know that you've slipped from, you know, focused on the church to focused on your church. Here's some, here's some just for instances for you. Like if, if you're more focused on the song selection than you are on souls being saved, then you've moved from it being about the church to being your church. If you're more concerned about coffee being spilled on the carpet than you are people from the surrounding area coming here and finding Christian community, then you've moved from it being about the church to being your church. And, and here's, here's one that might step on toes the most. If, if you are more interested in having conversations about the flavor of the coffee or the flavor of the mints, then you are about people coming into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Then you have moved from it being about the church to be about your church. And listen, I'm not here to stand up here and throw stones. I'm not here to condemn anyone. But what I do want to do is call your attention and call your focus back to being about the church instead of your church. And the way we're going to do that today is to open our scripture together to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, to the very first time that we see the word church anywhere in the Bible. And so if you, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, you're invited to open with me to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And as you're getting there, I want to let you know that this passage that we're about to read sounds a lot like the passage we discussed last week. And so if you were with us last week, you know that throughout Jesus's ministry, people would come up to him and want to know about his identity. Who are you really is the question people were constantly asking Jesus. And really what it boiled down to is people wanted to know, hey, Jesus, are you good or are you God? Like, like are you just a good teacher, a good preacher, a good healer, a, a good prophet? Or are you like legitimately God with a bod? Like, like, which is it? Are you good or are you God? And it's as if Jesus understood that this was going to be a problem, not just for the people of his era, but pretty much throughout the generations. And so he addresses this head on in the passage that we're about to read. So let's pick up reading with Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, well, some say John the Baptist and others say Elijah and others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Now, it's important to note that Jesus doesn't do anything accidentally throughout the course of his ministry. Like every word was chosen very intentionally. And so there's no doubt that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing in selecting the location of where he was going to firmly and once and for all time reveal his identity. And so 1,100 feet up on the slopes of Mount Hermon, Jesus has marched his followers out of the region of the Sea of Galilee up to the district of Caesarea Philippi. And you can actually see it here on the map. And so it's a, it's a pretty good long journey from the region of the Sea of Galilee there. And Caesarea Philippi was a beautiful city. In fact, it was actually a gift from Caesar Augustus to Herod the Great for his loyalty. And Herod the Great was so honored to receive it that he took like deep pride in building Caesarea Philippi into one of the most beautiful cities of the day. He even went so far as to build this like ridiculously beautiful temple that people would travel from all over the surrounding area to come and worship. And and you know who they were worshiping at, at the temple that Herod had built? Caesar Augustus. They were worshiping him as, as a man who was also a king, who was also a god. Now, I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus, with this as the backdrop, turns to his followers, his disciples, and he asks them the question, who do the crowds say that I am? And they know the answer to this one, and so they start rattling it off. They say, well, some say that you're John the Baptist, who, by the way, was Jesus' cousin who was just recently beheaded. And, and others say that you're Elijah, who, who was a prophet who died 800 years before, who, who was believed to be the one who would come and usher in the Messiah. Uh, others say you're Jeremiah or one of the other prophets, perhaps a prophet who lived even further long ago. And then Jesus goes and makes it personal. He says, but, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter pounces on this question. He says, you're the Christ, the Son of of the living God. This is their bingo moment, right? This is the moment where they move from saying, hey, you're not just good, you're God. And this is how Jesus responds to them. Let's pick up reading with verse 17. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. And Bar, anytime you see that in scripture, simply means son of. So blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I love Jesus's response to Peter, right? Like, Peter gets this one right. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Peter. Why? Because there is no way you got there on your own, buddy, right? Like the reason that you're blessed is because God had to help you out with the answer to this question. Like you were never gonna figure this out on your own, but you, but you got there. Why? Because you're blessed because the Lord revealed who I am to you. And I I love this. I love this because then Jesus goes on to explain that on this rock, I will build my church. This is the very first time anywhere in your New Testament that you see the word church show up. And I love that Jesus first uses the word church in the context of a prophecy. This is a prophecy that he's speaking. He's predicting that he's going to build his church and nothing will be able to stand against it. And here's why this matters. This morning, when you made it here, like you made it through the drive with your family and you got here to be a part of church today, you know what you did? You fulfilled Jesus's prophecy that he spoke to Peter 2,000 years ago in Caesarea Philippi. You're a part of fulfilling a prophecy that Jesus spoke. Church, that's 
That's pretty cool if you ask me. And I love the way he says it. He says, and upon this rock. Now, when Jesus says that, he's using a really interesting kind of wordplay moment here. And to catch it, we're going to have to do a little bit of backtracking. And so if you go back to the beginning of John's gospel, when Jesus is first calling his very first disciples, one of them who he calls is a man named Simon, who's a fisherman. And when Jesus calls Simon, he goes ahead and gives him a new name. It's an Aramaic name. He calls him Cephas which can we all agree is a rough name? Like, I don't know if any of y'all are pregnant here, but if you are, please don't like eliminate Cephas from the name options for everybody involved. Like you might as well name your kid punching bag, right? Like, I mean, that, that, that's going to be a hard time. And, and the meaning of the name really doesn't even help it. Like it's, there's no redemptive quality. Like the name means like stone or rock, right? Like that's, that's a bummer. And some of you are going, wait, wait, if Jesus renamed Simon Cephas, like, why don't our Bibles say Cephas? Like, why, why, why do we know him more as Peter, right? In fact, in our passage later, it says Simon Peter. Why, why is that? Well, because when Jesus was speaking, he spoke in the language of Aramaic. That was the tongue that almost everybody communicated in at that point in time. But if you wanted to record something that was going to be spread far and wide, you wouldn't write in Aramaic, you would write in Greek, because that was the primary language that was used by the majority of the Roman Empire. And so the early gospel writers like Matthew, when they recorded this, they wrote in Greek so that more people would be able to have access to who Jesus is and what he had come to do. And so when we read about Simon, we read that his new name is Peter. Now, it's important to note that both Cephas and Peter mean the exact same thing. They both mean rock or stone. And so you might be thinking, well, so is Jesus saying that uh, upon this Peter, I, I will build my church? Like, is it really upon Peter? Like, is he, is he the cornerstone of the church? No, no, he's, he's not. Well, what he's saying is upon this rock, this confession of who I am, I will build my church. What Jesus is going to lay as the foundation of his church is this idea that, that what Peter just said is the truth, that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. That is going to be the cornerstone on which he builds the rest of his church. Now, I find the word cornerstone really fascinating because like, it's, it's kind of found throughout the pages of scripture, but we don't really have a context for it anymore because you know what we have that they didn't have? concrete, right? When, when you have concrete, a cornerstone's not nearly as significant anymore. But prior to the invention of concrete, a cornerstone was a really big deal. In the time of Christ, if you wanted to lay a foundation to build a new building or even build a home, you would have to go to a local quarry. You would have to get several large stones. And before you started laying them out, what you'd have to decide is which is going to be the cornerstone, the first one laid that would become the reference point for the rest of the foundation. See, what Jesus was saying is the cornerstone or the reference point for the rest of the church was always going to be that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. But what he's getting at is it doesn't matter who becomes a part of the church. It doesn't matter how old they are, what gender they are, what skin color they have. It doesn't matter what political party they are affiliated with. It just doesn't matter as long as what joins us together, what holds us together is this confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. 
Now, I, I find this really, really beautiful language that Jesus is giving us here. And I think if we're going to have a deep understanding of the church, we've got to grasp this. And it's also significant to note that when Jesus says the word church here, the Greek word for church is the word ekklesia. Can you say that with me, church? Ekklesia. Yeah. Now this, this, and it's a powerful word. It's not a word that talks about a building or a location. In fact, the word ekklesia doesn't even have any religious connotation to it whatsoever. It's not a religious word. You see, what it is, is it just means a gathering of people who are united around a common or, or a singular focus. And so you could actually have a group of soldiers who are gathering together to lay out a military objective, to lay out a military plan or strategy. You could have a, a, a group of people who are really active in politics get together to talk about their platform or their party or their candidate. And you know what they would have been described in the Greek? As an ecclesia. That's what they would have been described as, which kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Like, if the Greek word that we get translated church is ekklesia or a gathering, why on earth doesn't our Bible actually say that? Like, why doesn't our Bible tell us in this passage that upon this rock I will build my gathering? Right? Like, that, that's what the Greek actually means. So, so how did we get here? All right, to answer that, church... I'm going to ask you to buckle up, okay? We're about to go sprinting through church history this morning, all right? All right? So here's what we're going to do. I need you to understand this. Shortly after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the church, like completely, all of Christianity was, was made illegal. Like it was illegal within the Roman Empire. And so for the first few hundred years of the church, it was persecuted mercilessly. Like you, per, you perhaps are familiar with the persecution of the early church under emperors like Nero or Domitian. What they would do is they made it their personal objective to stamp out the church. And so when the church would gather together, it was too dangerous to go out in public. So what they would do is they would gather together in homes and have what were called love feasts. Now, love feast was the ancient ancient church's version of a potluck supper. How many of you grew up having potluck suppers? All right, so the church would get together, have their potluck, and then after they had finished eating, what they would do is they would read some scripture, they'd sing some hymns, they would discuss some theology, and then they would share communion before dispersing and heading back to do life together. That, that's what the early church looked like. And then things began to change. And you know what caused the change? This is fascinating. The catalyst for the change in the way church would happen for all of history was when a man named Constantine was on the verge of taking over as emperor of Rome. Here, here's a picture of Constantine. He looks like a fun guy, doesn't he? Constantine, just before he was about to become emperor, makes religion legal in the Roman government. Now, this was huge. This was a huge shift. Keep in mind, it Prior emperors had made it like their mission to stamp out Christianity. And he's saying, no, no, it's fine. It's legal. But nothing really shifted with the church. The church just kind of kept doing their thing, not, not really having to change at all. And then in 313, Constantine did something that nobody would have ever seen coming. Constantine professed faith in Christ. Constantine basically went to the cornerstone and said, Jesus is who he says he is. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, you would think that this would change the church forever for the better, right? Like the church, man, you went from being persecuted to now the most powerful man on the planet is on your side. So things are going to get way better for the church, right? 
wrong. See, when Constantine professed faith in Jesus, you know who else began professing faith in Jesus? A whole lot of other rich and powerful people. And when these rich and powerful people began getting involved in church, it began to evolve in very unnatural and very unhealthy ways. See, these rich people started looking at these gatherings and homes and went, hmm, no, we can do better than that. So here's what we'll do. Instead of meeting in homes now, I'll go ahead and buy us a place to meet within the city hub. And we'll have our own building for our religious activities. Won't that be great? And and here, you know what? Instead of us having to have conversations about theology where we kind of learn and grow together, that's, that's too much work. Here's what we'll do. We'll hire a professional pastor and they'll just basically be like our theologian. If we have questions, we'll just go to them and they'll give us the answers. So that'll be better. And you know what? To be honest, some of y'all can't really sing that well. So you know, here's what we'll do. Instead of us singing hymns together, we'll just hire a choir director and we'll have a choir that leads the singing. And what ended up happening was the church went from this beautiful communal movement where everybody had a part to play and everybody was involved to something that they would go to about once a week and a location outside of homes where they would sit back as spectators for the religious professionals. Now, some of you are beginning to catch on why this would be a problem for the modern church today. Now, here's what I find really intriguing in this whole scenario, because some of you are going, okay, yeah, but that, that doesn't help us understand where the word church comes from. So I'm tracking with you, just hang with me. When we started meeting outside of homes and went to specific locations, the the Romans called those basilicas, right? Like if you've ever traveled across kind of, uh, especially Eastern Europe, you'll probably see a lot of basilicas all around. Well, if you were to go into the European area, you would have what was called kirches. Same thing, different word. And kirche was a German word to describe these houses of the Lord, right? That's actually what it means. But Here's what's so interesting. Kirche or Basilica, they describe a location or a place. Here's the real problem, guys. When you open your New Testament of the Bible, when Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, he had no intention of saying, I will build this building or this location or this place. He said, ecclesia. That's what he was talking about. And we've translated it as Kirche, this German word that describes a location. Okay, let me put this on the screen to help you out. I really want to get us, I really want us to understand this distinction between ecclesia and Kirche. An ecclesia is a gathering of people united by a common purpose. Kirche is a location or place. Kirche is where we get the word church. So check this. Your New Testament of your Bible is translated almost entirely word for word from the Greek, except the word church. Church was a word co-opted from the German Kirche to describe a location or place, which was never what the church was supposed to be. What Jesus was talking about was an unstoppable movement, a gathering of people who were grassroots, who were going to take the good news of Jesus to the very ends of the earth. And yet, 10 years 10 years after Constantine professes faith in Christ, the church went from being this grassroots movement that could withstand the worst persecution the world has ever seen to being an institution for believers. 
This is not what Jesus had in mind. In fact, I think it's this concept of kirche versus ecclesia that's at the root of why people in our nation today view the church not as a movement any longer. In the United States today, people don't think of the church as this unstoppable force, this movement that could change the world forever. No, people in our nation think of the church more as a monument than a movement. Monuments exist to celebrate dead people. Movements exist and are driven by alive people. Do you know what happens to churches that are so fixated on the past? They begin saying things that are real dangerous. These are real dangerous words in a church, saying things like, we've never done it that way before. Because when, church start, when churches start saying things like that, what that tells you is that all they can do is look back at the past, at what was, what used to be. In fact, there's many churches that are still just fixated on, on what Jesus did and what the early churches did, and they have no interest in actually following Jesus and being his church in the world today because they're content to simply be a monument where people go, wow, there used to be something significant there. Instead of being a movement that goes, wow, the world is being changed by that group of people who have gathered together under the common purpose that Jesus Christ is the son of the living God. And that distinction makes all the difference in the world. A few years ago, my wife, Kristen, and I had the, had the privilege of going, to, going on a mission trip to Nairobi, Kenya. In fact, we were working in a small village just outside of Nairobi called Joska. And what we spent our days doing on, on the trip was building desks. Because in that community, if you didn't have a desk, you couldn't go to school. And so the more desks, the more kids could go to school. But the reality is we weren't there really to build desks. We really wanted to build relationships and tell people about Jesus. And so after a week of building those desks and building those relationships, it was finally time for us to leave that village. And before we made our way back to Nairobi to fly home, we had the privilege of actually going on a safari. And for a kid who grew up loving the zoo, this was a big deal. Like this was a legit really big deal to me because I, I, I was one of those kids who like I loved like these big animals that you see in the zoo like it, it, it was amazing to me as a kid that you could have animals that were so big in the world and so dangerous in the world and that there were still people on the planet alongside all these big dangerous animals and then I got to go on safari and I saw with my own eyes those big dangerous animals like like I sat on a bench next to a baboon Legit, true story. I've got a picture. It's awesome. My guys, I'm sitting on a bench with a baboon. Oh, sorry. Whew. The baboon almost got me, man. I, not only that, like, I, I saw rhinos. Like rhinos. Do you, know what, do you know what rhinos gathered together are called? It's called a crash. Yeah, I saw a crash of rhinos. It was awesome. Uh, I was on a boat, like, like a kayak-sized boat, when hippos came up out of the water. Yeah, I may have added water to that, that lake, okay? <laughs> like, it was crazy. And then, and then the thing I'll, I'll never forget is our, our, our group was kind of in this, this van um, that looked like it could break down, which is a little alarming to me considering we were in the, the you know, wild habitat of these wild animals where there's not any animals who are fed. They hunt and kill. Um, we were in our, our van, and, and we looked, and we saw a male lion just 10 yards off. 
And by the time I was able to get my camera out, he had kind of scooted back into the brush a little bit. This is a picture I took um, of, of the lion. And, and it was, again, only 10 yards away. And I remember like I was hanging outside of our van, like trying to get as close to him and like zoom in as much as I could. And then he went to yawn. He opened his mouth and I about did a backflip back into the bus because this animal, like there was no cage. There was no wall. There was nothing to prevent it from grabbing me and like taking me off into the jungle, okay? And I remember just staring at like the, like the raw power and the majesty and the strength of this animal. And I just was in awe of this beast. I mean, like when you hear one of those bad boys roar in the wild, oh, it's breathtaking. And the craziest thing happened. When we got back from this safari, I've never again had an urge to go to the zoo. I, I don't have any interest in going to the zoo whatsoever. And what's interesting to me is like, I can go to the zoo in Atlanta and I can see baboons and I, I can see rhinos. I can see hippos. I can see lions. But it's not the same as being around animals in the wild. Church, I'm concerned that the church today has become like animals at the zoo when we were created to be animals in the wild. I'm convinced that when Jesus died on a cross for the sins of the world and said, I'm going to leave, but it's okay because I'm about to send my spirit to live inside of you. He had no intention of you being like an animal at the zoo, waiting for somebody to come and feed you once a week and protect you so that you didn't have to do any of the work itself. Like I'm convinced that when Jesus looks at you, he doesn't want to see an animal at the zoo. He wants to see an animal on safari. In fact, my prayer for us as we begin this series called The Church, my prayer is that we would let go of this desire to be in our Christian cages. I pray that we would let go of this desire to have somebody do all of the religious work for us. My prayer is that we would let go of this idea that it's okay to be a monument even though we were made to be a movement. And my prayer is that today, we would draw a line in the sand and decide once and for all time that we are never again going to be a monument as the church. We're going to be a movement that sweeps across the nation, that reaches around the world and makes disciples who makes disciples until we reach one, until we reach everyone. And some of y'all are going, nah, listen, there's no way. There's no way that we can have that big of an influence all over, all over the country, all over the world. Listen, here's what I know. If we start with our community. And everybody in our community knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that this place isn't a kirkche, it's an ecclesia, that we are a movement, that we are on mission, then the, the way this church is perceived in our community will change. And as we continue growing and reaching more people on mission together, then we're gonna have a bigger reach and we're gonna have a bigger reach. And you know what? Maybe just maybe we change this world one at a time with everybody coming to understand that the church wasn't Jesus's idea, okay? Listen, the church as it is today wasn't Jesus's idea. The church as it was intended to be was every believer filled with the wild, untamable Holy Spirit out on a mission of making disciples, making disciples, not waiting for any professional to do the work for them. Because if that happens, I know with 100% certainty, we'll never be a monument 
will always be a movement and you'll become who you were made to be. Peace, bring it all to peace. Storm surrounding me, let it break. Let your name still call the sea to still.
that the shadows can't deny your name will not be overcome your name is alive forever lifted high your name cannot be overcome let's say that again your name your name is alive that the shadows can't deny your name cannot be overcome and your name is alive forever lifted high your name will not be overcome my son let's sing Jesus Jesus 